Well, good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to be in Numbers 22 through 24 um, on our yearly series once a month going through the book of Numbers. Um, one thing I did want to mention, I forgot to bring up that Brandon Sparks, he's out of town um, in Texas. He's dropping off McKinsey in college in Texas, so keep him in your prayers with the, uh, his travels. Um, and his daughters, too. They're um, kind of pulled in two different directions. Um, their mom, from what Brandon has told me, is not faithful to the Lord. And so um, it's almost like there's kind of two different um, religious environments they're exposed to. Um, but Brandon's daughters, they are Christians, and so just keep, keep them in your prayers as they navigate life and hard circumstances, and Brandon as well as he tries to be an example to them. So we're going to be in Numbers 22, and something that uh, I brought up in the last couple of sermons is Israel is actually at the end of their 40-year wandering. So if you see on the map there, they're opposite Jericho on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and that's where they're going to be staying for the rest of the book of Numbers and also for the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. So they're, they're pretty much done traveling at this point. And Balak, the king of Moab, um, you imagine like this shepherd instead being the king of Moab. You know, he sees Israel camped by tribe at the doorstep of his territory. And something that might make this seem very threatening is if you look back at chapter 21, verse 28... So the children of Israel, they had conquered and utterly destroyed Sihon, king of Heshbon. And one of the proverbs it brings up related to Sihon and how strong his nation was, for a fire went out from Heshbon, this is 2128, a flame from the tower of Sihon, it devoured Er of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab, you are ruined, O people of Chemosh. The idea is, Moab at one point was conquered by Sihon and Moab has just seen Sihon who conquered them conquered by Israel. So you can imagine how this would be fairly terrifying that there's this nation that has destroyed your enemies who are stronger than you that are now at your doorstep. Um, even though Israel poses no threat to Moab, they certainly may look threatening. So we're going to be starting examining this person Balaam because this is the first time that the narrative in the book of Numbers actually zooms out. So nothing we're going to be studying in this section, um, none of these events, at least presently, would be anything that Israel is aware of. Um, I think once we get to chapter 5 in the Senate Peor, um, Israel becomes aware of some of the things that were going on in Balaam, and Israel actually ends up taking revenge and killing Balaam, and we'll get to that in a little while. Um, but suffice it to say, um, I'll review some of the things from the scripture reading. So verse 2, Balak, he's the king of Moab. He's the one who's looking down at Israel. He sees this uh, huge nation, this military force, seemingly, right at his doorstep. And in verse 4, he's worried that this horde is going to lick up all that is around us. And so he calls in verse 5 for Balaam, and their names are really similar. I'm going to try to not mix them up, but I might say Balaam when I mean Balak and Balak when I mean Balaam. I'll try not to mix them up. Um, but verse 4, or rather verse 5, he calls Balaam for the purpose of cursing the people. In verse 6 he mentions, curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. 
Perhaps I'm able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. So kind of the unusual thing, Balaam is a prophet, and I'm not sure what to say exactly about his background, but at least as the narrative deals with, he's a prophet of God. And reliably, whoever he curses is cursed. Whoever he blesses is blessed. So he's kind of like a prophet for hire. And it's well known, he's got a great reputation, that his word comes to pass. And I have a feeling that the king of Moab is probably his highest paying customer that he's ever had before. And the thing about Balaam that is interesting is he always says the right thing. So if you look at verse 8, what he replies to Balak's messengers, he says, spend the night here and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. So the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there's a people who came out of Egypt and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I'm able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, and this is really important for the story. God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Period. Is God clear? Is he plain? Is he being direct? Is there any mystery or ambiguity with what God meant there? No. God said, do not curse the people for they are blessed. And what we're going to see is Balaam play around with this. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll expound on that as the story progresses. But I want to read 13 through 20 and see how this progresses initially here. 13 through 20, uh, through 21. So Balaam arose early in the morning, or arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak again sent leaders more numerous, more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. And again, very important for the story here, verse 17. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, and again, this This sounds so good. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the the Lord my God. Now please, you stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up, go with them. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. So Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. So verse 18, what Balaam says there, I would say that probably is one of the greatest statements of respect for God's authority easily in the entire Bible. You know, that whatever you give me, it doesn't matter. I can't do a small or big thing against the word of the Lord. I mean, that's, that is as model a statement of respect to the word of God as you can get. And yet, if you're aware of this, Balaam is exclusively brought up in the New Testament 
in an extraordinary negative light. Extraordinarily negative light. So we're going we're gonna to look at these examples. But Balaam is consistently brought up in the New Testament as a model of the nature of false teachers. And that can be kind of confusing because Balaam never says the wrong things. In fact, he always says the right things. Every time he opens, well, not every time, most of the times when he opens his mouth, it's seemingly the right thing to say. But, and I'll put the scriptures on the board here, here's what the New Testament writers say about Balaam. And again, these are contexts where it's talking about people who um, abandon the Lord, who get involved in apostasy, false teachers. And Balaam is brought up in the context as kind of like giving greater insight into the kind of people we're talking about here. 2 Peter 2, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgressions for a mute donkey, which we'll see him talking to his donkey here in just a moment. Speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Jude 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. And then continuing to talk about these kind of people, they are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Something I think is worth pointing out here um, Stephen McCrary, who was here for our last gospel meeting, um, I think that was April, he said something to me that really impacted me when we lived together in Alabama. Um, we weren't living in the same house. We were like 10 minutes from each other, so we were like living together in Alabama. We spent a lot of time together studying and studying with others. And When we were driving together at one point, he talked about how he felt... He could easily satisfy brethren in his preaching if he just flexed his doctrinal muscles. What he meant by that is if he just teaches like doctrinal sermons, hammering on denominations, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent. And it's like, amen. Like, yeah, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where it's silent. Did you know that those can be empty words of arrogance? And that that can just be completely vain depending on the heart of the person. That's who Balaam was. He said all the right things. He said them strongly and powerfully. But did you know that some of the loudest preachers I've known, and I don't mean that every loud preacher falls away, but I've known many loud preachers who speak very aggressively, who are very loud in their way of presenting God's word, and they get involved in adultery. They fall away. They abandon the Lord, never to return again. Again, just using rhetoric and saying the right things, what we see in Balaam, that's not righteousness. That doesn't mean that someone is in the right position with the Lord. Revelation 3, but I have some things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. This is the lens through which we should study the character of Balaam. I would say Balaam is a character study of apostasy. And so let's, let's read it through that lens. So the problem with Balaam is not his outward confessions. That's not the problem. It is his inward intentions. It's his heart and his hidden desires. 
One thing that can make this problematic is Balaam is actually never honest. He's never honest. Through the whole story, he never says what he's really thinking. He never says what he's really wanting out of this. And what that does is in verse 22, when God becomes angry that Balaam's going, you're like, whoa, God, you just told him to go. Now you're angry and you're about to kill him? Like, who's the hypocrite here? Who's the hypocrite here? Is God judging Balaam for doing what he said? Or is he judging Balaam for his intentions in going, right? So I want to consider, again, verse 19 compared to verse 12. So verse 12, again, God's clear. Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed, period. I mean, God could not have spoken any more simply or any more clearly about the matter. And yet, in verse 17, when Balak sends more distinguished men who are promising riches and honor and whatever you want, it'll be given to you. Well, now verse 19, well, let me find out what else the Lord will say to me. So you have to think of verse 19. What else is there to say? Is there something that God was ambiguous about? And I've seen again and again where there will be a situation a brother or sister is in. And it's something that is difficult. I've seen situations where I've talked with brethren about divorce and remarriage and what the Bible says about it. And they want to see what else the Lord has to say about that. You know, there's situations where I've, there's a congregation that I've looked at their page of their history and it's a congregation that's not sound. And in their history, they talked about how they restudied an issue over about a year and they were prayerful. They were praying about the issue. They were, they were restudying things and well, what do you know? As they wanted to know what else the Lord had to say, they had in their history the church divided, but, well, now they're doing so well and they're stronger than ever, right? So we need to be really careful sometimes by couching wrong intentions with seeming righteous language. You know, the problem with God's will, what I run into at least, is not that he's not clear. It's that it gets in the way of what we want. And things that God forbids, when God says, don't go in that direction. Don't take that. That's not for you right now. That doesn't belong to you. Well, if that gets in the way of my deepest desires, maybe I need to see what else the Lord has to say about it. And I want to look back as well at verse 13. Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Did Balaam say what God said there? You know, he could have said, like, this people's blessed and they cannot be cursed. But he didn't say that. And when I was in elementary school, uh, my parents lived on a neighborhood for one year where there were lots of kids who were my age. It was a really fun uh, part of my childhood. My best friend lived a few houses down, and every day after school, he'd come up to the door, and he would say, can you play? So it was always like, can you come outside and play? And at that time, if my parents wouldn't let me, you know what I would say? <laughs> well, my parents said no. What am, what am I implying? They said no, my parents said no, but I say yes. Like, I wish I could come out, but the problem is my parents forbid me, right? So again, I think when we look at the lens that the New Testament writers paint of Balaam, we really need to be careful to look at the problems and understand Balaam is not speaking honestly, and he's looking for loopholes in what God has to say. And this quickly turns problematic in 22 through 35. So we'll read through the, the whole account here where Balaam is on his way. And I want you to think again, why is God angry with Balaam? And, and pay attention 
to what Balaam says and what God does in relation to his words. Verse 22. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further, stood in a narrow path where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with a stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way, notice this, your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. She had not turned aside from me. I would, have sh- I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. And then, I mean, just think, just to interrupt here for a second. If it's displeasing to you, really, if? Verse 35, But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. So I think one thing we get from this as well is Balaam is misunderstanding the nature of the permission that God has granted him. Um, I'd suggest there's a lot of ways in life where to receive permission does not mean approval, right? You know, again, I think about me in my childhood where there are plenty of times where, my, where I might beg my parents relentlessly for something or to go somewhere and they might eventually say, fine, go. And you know what that is? <laughs> That's a test. <laughs> because if I go, if they've said no, and they've been very clear, I do not want you to go, then I'm going to be in more trouble if I do end up going, right? So again, God's permission does not mean full approval. Well, the donkey saw God's angel holding his sword, and she tries to stop from going in the way. So at first she wanders away and Balaam strikes the donkey. And I imagine the angel is kind of moving around here. So the donkey, I imagine like, you know, their eyes are on the two opposite sides of their head. So I imagine like the donkey's like watching the angel like move as Balaam is striking her. And then the angel ends up standing on the path and the donkey tries to press Balaam's foot against the wall. He slams into his donkey again. That I imagine the donkey's looking at the angel, and the angel starts walking closer with the sword in his hand, and then the donkey just sits down, and then, of course, Balaam, just enraged, ends up slamming on his donkey. And you notice he doesn't notice that he's talking to his donkey? And I think we need to remember, in Second Peter, it mentions that the donkey restrained the madness of the prophet. 
You know, so I think Balaam was so lost in what he wanted, in the greed of what he wanted. This, this, this was not about Balaam doing God's will. This is not a story of Balaam being a good prophet who's going to go portray God's word just as God spoke it. This is a prophet who wants money. And he knows to get that money, he's got to curse Israel. And oh boy, God told me to go, and so maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe God is going to bend to my will, and maybe I'm going to be able to get some money out of this after all. And so Balaam's way, not the way of his actions, God did permit him to go, but the way, as in his greed and what he thinks God is going to do for him, is contrary to the will of God. And so Balaam is just out of his mind in getting to this money and doesn't miss a beat talking back to his donkey. And I think the point of this story, again, is with so many things in the Old Testament, isn't just to see the silliness of the situation, which, which it is silly. Um, and I think deliberately this is meant to be quite the standout story of this mad prophet having a conversation with his donkey here and his donkey you know, deviating, slamming his foot into a wall, laying down underneath him. But I want you to think, what do we do when God gets in our way? You know, Jesus, when he died on the cross, doesn't that show us how we treat God when he gets in the way? Isn't that what the Pharisees did to Jesus is he was getting in the way? And the only way for them to get what they wanted, Jesus had to get out of the way. And you imagine as much as he beat on his donkey, how brutally was Jesus beaten in his suffering on the cross? You know, so as, as silly as it is that Balaam was talking to his donkey and, and hitting his donkey, wow, what, what I do, what I have done to get what I want when it's contrary to God, I have all the more reason to be convicted and humbled when I think of Jesus, right? And so often I think we, we love God so much as he leads us in the way of our desire. But again, what happens when he gets in the way, right? So again, Balaam says seemingly the right things in verse 34. I have sinned. Amen. <laughs> it's beautiful. He indeed has sinned. But what we see with the way the story plays out his words mean nothing, absolutely nothing. There was no change of heart. We know this from, I think, two passages. Not Well, the narrative plays out that he didn't change. But Deuteronomy 23, Moses is reflecting on the situation with Balaam. And, well, it's God speaking through Moses. God says he would not listen to Balaam. And he turned his curse into a blessing. And God says, because I love you. So think about it. In Deuteronomy 23, it's verse 5. God says, I would not listen to Balaam. And so in what we're about to see in 23 and 24, where Balaam keeps going, trying to curse the people, God is not going to listen to Balaam, meaning that Balaam is trying to make God curse the people. And God's not willing to listen. And so although Balaam says he has sinned, what he ends up doing proves is there was no real contrition of heart. And I want you to turn to this one, Deuteronomy 31. This is one of those blanket and you miss it references to the situation, but I think it's actually very, very significant and important. 
So in chapter 25, um, Israel will end up committing sexual sin with the women of Midian and Moab and end up joining them in idolatry. And the congregation is punished for it, and it's severe. Um, And as they're taking revenge on the Midianites, look at Numbers 31, verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Rebah, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Baal with a sword. Skip down to verse 16. Behold, these, and he's talking about women they've spared. He's saying, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. You know what's sad about Balaam? He was unreachable. God works with him with the donkey. He sees the angel with the sword drawn. God turns his curse into a blessing again and again and again. And you know what Balaam does after all of that? He still counsels Balak of a way to curse Israel. And in some small momentary sense, he succeeded. Israel for a moment was cursed. God did send a plague among them. Many Israelites did die as a result. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling, Balaam got his money when he counseled Balak to do that. But Balaam died in his sin. And Israel killed him and realized what he had done against them. So Balaam, again, he said the right words, I have sinned, but it was shallow and empty. You know what God is really concerned about with sin in our lives? It's not just the behavior, it's the heart that led to that behavior. And far too often, you know, we studied about church discipline this morning, that when we're dealing with sin, we're only thinking about behaviors and not heart. And I think people tend to be a lot more willing to stand on a change of behavior when they haven't even changed their heart. It's like, well, I'm not doing the sin anymore. Have you changed your heart? Are you you sorry for what you did? And I've talked to brethren who have committed gross sin and immorality, and they're no longer doing it. But wow, their attitude towards it, the lack of sorrow, the lack of conviction, they may have stopped the action, oftentimes by either circumstance or it was found out, but their heart has certainly not changed. What God is more concerned about is not us getting caught and saying, I've sinned but getting to the heart of the problem, and that's what Balaam catastrophically failed to do. 23 and 24. And I think seeing all these things helps us understand that God is working alone here. Everything is working against him. Israel in the wilderness, well, that's been a failure, seemingly. Balaam's now trying to curse Israel, and he's not being changed by anything God is doing. Balak wants to curse Israel, and so it's, it's, it's like everything is working against God. He is working on his own here. And that magnifies, I think, the nature of these blessings in 23 and 24. And so three times, Balaam is going to go to Balak and they're going to set up sacrifices and Balaam's going to go seek counsel from God and each time God is going to turn what Balaam wanted to be a curse into an incredible blessing. By the way, before we get there, um, Verse 38 almost seems 2238. So like when he gets to Balak, they almost like, what took you so long? I urgently sent you. Why did you not come? 
And verse 38, Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. So to me, that kind of reads, he's like apologetic. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. In chapter 23. What happens each time is, look at verse 4. Now God met Balaam and he said, I have set up the seven altars and I have offered up, offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. That's going to happen each time. I want you to think, verse 4. Does that win him anything? You know, when he says, God, I've set up the animals. I've made the sacrifices. It's like, and? I mean, so what? <laughs> you know, and I think this helps give a context for sacrifices that have been commanded in Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers. Are those sacrifices to somehow like bend God's will towards us or like win a right to what we want or to get God to somehow like compromise on his word? Sacrifices mean nothing. It means nothing. God is going to do his will and the point of sacrifice is not for God to bend to us but for us to learn how important it is to bend to God. You know, so it's the same with our assemblies, right? And partaking of the Lord's Supper. We're not doing these things as religious rituals so that we can have the freedom through the week to, you know, sin and do what we want and whatever. And, you know, we come back again and feel really good about doing these things together. No, we do these things so that we can remember that it's us who need to bend to God's will. It's us who have every reason to die to ourselves and live to God. And so... God's attitude toward Israel, the blessings he speaks, they're astonishing. I just want to read section by section here, specifically the blessings. There's, there's a repetition of Balaam and Balak. They keep going to new places. Well, maybe over here we can curse Israel. Oh, that didn't work. Let's go over here and curse Israel. Didn't work again. Let's, let's try going over here. But I, I want to read at least the sections where God speaks a blessing upon Israel. And so we'll start in 23, verse 7. He took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I, and how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And then verse 11, Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. Go down to verse 18. Again, they go to a different place. They set up sacrifices. la di da Verse 18. Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. For the Lord his God is with him, and a shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, he is for them like the horns of a wild ox. There is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. 
at the proper time it will be said to Jacob and to Israel, what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lay down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. And again, verse 25, Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them all nor bless them at all. Well, chapter 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. What I think is going on here in verse 24, and I could be wrong, this is more an opinion thing, but it seems like as Balaam is seeing, okay, this is not working, <laughs> you know, I'm seeking God's counsel and he's changing what I'm trying to say over and over again. So I think Balaam is trying to just get right into it. You know, he's not seeking omens, he's not seeking God, it's just, let me just speak. And God won't let him do it. God puts his spirit upon him, he takes up his discourse and says, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him. Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. Verse 10, Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Amazing. Let's read one last one before we reflect on the account here. Verse 15. So here, Balaam uh, reflects on one last oracle um, on the future of Israel. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnants from the city. Going back to chapter 23, verse 21. This to me is, is one of the most critical and astonishing statements in the entire book of Numbers he has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. What about their complaining? What about the snakes, chapter 21, that bit the people? What about the complaining about food? What about the rebellion of Korah? You know what this teaches us about God's attitude toward Israel? When God solves a problem with his people, his forgiveness is 
perfect. God's forgiveness is perfect. And you imagine how much this heightens the shame of what Israel will do in chapter 25. That God sees them with this unthinkable graciousness, this love that hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, not taking into account wrongs that are suffered, not flaunting self. As God loves Israel with this unthinkable love, in chapter 25, they're going off, committing sexual acts with the Moabites and the Midianites, offering sacrifices to idols along with them. God's attitude toward Israel is shocking. It's astonishing. And it's not that God says these things with rose-tinted glasses. It's not that he's ignorant of how far there is to go. But it's this attitude that would equip God to keep his purpose in mind and work with the nation along the way. You know, you think about how amazing this is. What's coming up after this? You know, God's not ignorant that after this comes the judges and a new generation will arise that did not know the Lord nor yet the works that he did for Israel and they will serve the Baals and abandon him. God's not ignorant of King Saul, the troubles that will come there. God's not ignorant of the unfaithfulness of the kings, the time of Babylon, the time of the captivity, the time of the return. God is not speaking with ignorance of Israel's future. And, and yet, despite how much there is to do, how many troubles there will be, when he speaks of Israel, it is saturated and flooded with hopeful promises. I think Jesus fulfills this principle when he's being tortured, mocked, and crucified. You know, you imagine in Luke 23, after they've beaten Jesus near to death, they've scourged him, slapped him in the face, they've spit on him, they have mocked him vehemently, they've dragged him around in public, they've stripped him of his clothes and held him up on a cross naked. So you imagine at some point you're wondering, I wonder what this guy must be thinking right now. And in Luke 23, seemingly, I don't imagine anybody even heard this. It says, as Jesus was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. It's the same principle. Jesus isn't ignorant of the evil that is against him when he's being crucified, the iniquity, the, the, the filth of the attitude, the bitterness, and how big a problem this is. And yet, when everything would point to Jesus being embittered, he speaks with hopeful graciousness. Just like Israel. I think we're meant in the narrative to have given up by this point. Like Israel, what a waste. You know, what can God do with this nation? But you know what's amazing with where we're living now? You know, you imagine before the new covenant, before Jesus, people would read these things and it's like there's, there's story left untold. You could read these things and think like, yeah, but we haven't seen it all play out yet. The benefit we have is God, he did it. All of these things, all of these promises he made through Balaam, the star arising from Israel, the dominion, the victory, the conquering of all nations around them, he did it. And so instead of being embittered by the condition of the nation and how they would continue to test God, he speaks with gracious faithfulness. And this is where we'll end the lesson in 1 Corinthians 1. 
This is the attitude that equips Paul to work with the Corinthians. You know, what a, what a mess. The Corinthian church was an absolute disaster. I mean, they're, they're divided, they're arrogant, they're boastful. You know, they're not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that, you know, is consistent with how it was instructed. They're taking each other to court. There's sexual sin being tolerated. They're involved in prostitution. Um, they're, they're not considering each other. Just, oh, it's such a mess. Where, where do you even begin? 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He's talking about the Lord. It says in verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's one of my favorite statements in Corinthians. Because it's like, how can you say that? Confirm these people to the end, blameless? I mean, do you not realize the condition they're in? And as Paul writes the letter, he's more aware than they are of the condition that they're in. But it's this attitude that equips him to deal with those things patiently, boldly, and graciously. And so it's not just Paul with the Corinthians. It's, this is the principle that equips us with each other. You know, it's, it's so easy to have an attitude where we know who we're supposed to be, and it's so frustrating when that's not who we are right now. You know, we're supposed to be kinder. We're supposed to be more forgiving. We're supposed to be more understanding. We're supposed to be wiser about our decisions. We're supposed to be this, this, and this. But it's, it's this attitude that is inherently centered in who God is. It was centered with the way that Paul saw the Corinthians. Again, when Paul says, you know, he's going to confirm you to the end blameless. That's not him saying like, you know, your problems are problems. It's him saying, God is faithful. We can deal with these things. Because of God's faithfulness and his understanding of purpose with Israel, here's where we are. We're going to work with this. We're going to grow. We're going to deal with all the problems that are going to happen, but we're going to get there. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians, you can get there too. So there might be things in the Bible where to practice them together, to study church disassociation together, it might be challenging. And we may run into problems as we're striving to grow in our unity together. But because of God's faithfulness as an example for us, we can grow and we can deal with any problem, any attitude, any divisive thing, and we can still attain to blamelessness in the end. Not because we are faithful, because God is faithful. So that's where we'll end the lesson this morning. That section of Numbers, it's the longest narrative section in the entire book of Numbers, and I think it is so focused on because of these things. Because Numbers is ultimately not a story about Israel. It's a story about God. And Israel is simply the tool God was using to reveal himself to us. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I just appeal to you to see the greatness of who God is and to surrender yourself to God through repentance, confessing Christ as Lord, and being baptized for remission of your sins. And if there's anyone here who has a need for encouragement or confession before the church, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.